an experience in life when you either um, you are ignorant of something or you just blatantly misunderstood something. Like, for example, there, there have been several times um, when I've been pulled over by an officer and he wants to know, why are you speeding? And I reply, under these certain circumstances, I didn't know the speed limit, which is the truth. I don't speed around here. I know the speed limit. I, I love the civil law. I don't want to take it. But on vacation, there have been times where I don't know the speed limit. I haven't seen one in two hours, and I get pulled over. And when he asks and I say, I don't know, the consequences are that I get to spend hard-earned money on a fat ticket. I just funded, in part, uh, the local economy of Nowhere USA. That's happened to me several times. And that's a minor thing. I mean, that kind of stuff happens all the time. And we've, everybody has those kind of situations. But what about the big ones? You know, what about those big things that if you misunderstand them or, or you're ignorant of them, the consequences are severe? What about those? My wife and I have been married for 10 years, over 10 years now. We dated for almost 10 years. And besides the gospel, it's the greatest thing in my life. It, it, marriage to me, it's not my kids. They're going to grow, out and le- grow up and leave one day. I'm not going to live with them. But she's different. Um, <clears throat> you know, one time every once in a while over the last 10 years, we have one of those conversations. Um, you know, those kind of conversations that you don't want to have but if you're going to have a successful marriage, you have to have them. You know what I'm talking about? We had one of those one time, and I don't even remember what spawned it. I just remember that the outcome was that I didn't fully appreciate some things that she thought I should have. That was the outcome of the conversation. I didn't fully appreciate all the little things that were being done that I should have appreciated. Now, let me say before you run to conclusions that she was absolutely right. Um, as a stay-at-home mom, there, there are, are tons of things that she does that were only seen by me and two kids who know not the difference. And so the only person that can see and affirm those things is me. And there's great damage done to the relationship if one needs to be affirmed and one of the ones who has the power to do that isn't affirming. That strained our relationship in my wife's eyes for a while. Um, Guys, if you let that go on for years, if you just sweep that kind of stuff under the rug, your relationship is headed down a road that's going to be disastrous, is it not? And I think all men in here know that. You know your needs, wife, to be lovingly affirmed. And you know that if you you misunderstand that, your relationship is going to be strained. You're not your fool. And women, you know there are certain things about your husband that have to be met. There are certain things that have to be affirmed. And if you don't do that, your relationship is going to be strained. Here's the kicker. Have you ever thought about the way that could apply to your relationship to your God? Has anybody ever thought about that? That maybe... If there are things about him that I'm supposed to understand rightly, that I'm supposed to know, if there are some of those things that I don't get, 
That just might strain our relationship. Guys, that's what we're going to talk about this evening in our text. Misrelating to the speed limit is bad. Misrelating to your spouse is worse. And if you really want to mess things up, just misrelate to your God because you misunderstand the way that He works. Our text tonight is great grace. If you're like me, I don't want to live that way. Um, And Paul is going to address this subject. I want you to turn in your scriptures to the favorite book of grace of Anne being Romans, chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. There are a few things that we need to know to rightly understand our sanctifications, which is our daily walk with the Lord from the time we become a Christian till the time we die, basically. All right, if you're wondering, get ready, because we're going to read it and we're going to dive in and... We're all going to leave with headaches, but I think we're going to love the gospel more. Verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Great idea. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. That's a statement worthy of celebrating. Let me pray for us and we'll jump in. Father, we sit beneath your word tonight. It has authority. It has sway. It has sovereign rule over our lives, I would hope. Uh, And I pray that if there are things that your um, people have walked in in here misunderstanding tonight, they would leave with a clear understanding, not because a loud man has made it right, but because your Holy Spirit, uh, by a gracious act, has taken your word and made it understandable uh, in the ears and hearts and lives of your people. Would you do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want you to see three things that Paul would tell us tonight. Look, if you want to understand, if you want to relate to God rightly, you've got to get these three things. Here they are. Simple enough. The first thing that you have to know, according to this text, is that you are dead to the old self and alive to the new. Now look, look at me. You have 
to get that. It is imperative that you get that statement is so huge. You have to understand what that means. And we get a picture of it in the first four verses. Um, Paul has just laid out justification by grace through faith up to this point in the literary context of the book from chapters 1 to 5. And now he knows whenever grace is rightly preached, he knows that a segment of his audience is going to err alongside with the antinomians regarding no law in their interpretation. Whenever you preach grace rightly, some of your hearers are going to hear it and go, man, that's great news. That means we can sin all we want and God is just going to love it. Paul knows that, which is why we have verse 1. Look at it. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? I know that there are some of you who hear what I've said the first five chapters and think, oh, this is great news. God loves to give us grace when we sin, so we'll sin more and it'll make Him happy. And Paul is saying, no. no and in the most emphatic language he could use in the Greek, by no means. Let it never be. There's no way. You can't do that with a right understanding of grace. Well, why not? And look at the way that he rationalizes with you in verse 2. Is your why? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Makes sense, right? How can that which is dead continue to live on? That's kind of impossible unless you're Jesus, which we're going to get to in a minute. Look at verse 3. Do you not, and there's the word for the night, no? that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Don't you know, as we began this evening, there's something fundamental that you've got to know as believers, and that is when you were baptized into Jesus, you were baptized into His death. Now the question is, do you know that? Um, Let me tell you what this does not mean. Paul is not talking about water baptism here. You have to know that. I'll tell you how I know quickly. He is talking about an event that is a required experience for all believers. All believers died and were baptized with Christ. Now here's why he can't be talking about water baptism. Have all believers been baptized? Think about that. All of them? Are we commanded to be baptized? Yes. Should we in obedience to the Scriptures be baptized? Absolutely. Is it a saving act that all believers participate in? No way. And if you say it is, you no longer believe in justification by faith alone, and you no longer believe in the Scriptures. He is not talking about water baptism. Here's another problem. What would you do with a thief on the cross? He didn't have time to get down and go either get immersed or poured on. And unless he was baptized at an earlier date, which we don't know, he's a member in heaven that wasn't baptized. So he's not talking about water baptism. What is he talking about? There's only one thing. He's talking about regeneration. The one thing that every believer, if you're a believer in Christ, if you're a Christian, if you're going to reside in heaven, the one experience that we all have in common is regeneration. All of us. If you haven't been regenerated, you're not a Christian. So Paul here uses the word baptism for union with Christ, applying it 
to regeneration. And therefore you arrive at verse 4. <clears throat> we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We were buried with him through our union with death in order that we might walk in newness of life. Now, I want you to focus on the word buried. What, what does that mean? Why do we bury things? Um, you know, Paul is speaking here of, of both physical and spiritual realities for us. But he's specifically speaking about the, the spiritual realities right now. Paul is saying you can't return to the old life because it's dead. Your old life, your unregenerate life died the moment you put your faith in Christ. It died at the cross with Christ. It no longer lives. You can't return to the old life. Here's an interesting thought. Can Jesus return to his state of humiliation? No way. And believer, you cannot return to your state of unregenerate man. That's what Paul says. It's dead. It died. It's been buried. You know, that's what we do in funerals. We... we it's, it's usually the hardest part of a funeral for anybody is the end. You know, the committal when we commit the body to the ground for burial. For, that means we're not going to see it anymore. It's over. It's the, it's the final act until the resurrection. That's what Paul's saying. Your old unregenerate self has been buried. You can't, you can't see it. <clears throat> Paul is saying that in your union with Christ spiritually... Your old, unregenerate life died at the cross, and it's been buried there, and it's gone forever. So therefore, you as a believer in Christ walk in newness of life. <clears throat> it's impossible to go back. Now, you've got to understand something. I love where I am in life right now. I love, it's great. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Besides where I am right now, sorry about the ice. My favorite years of my life were high school. Um, it wasn't co college for me was two months of the fraternity, getting it all out of my system, and then saving money to get married and buy a house. That was it. That wasn't it for me. Besides where I am now, my favorite part of life was high school, across the street. Um, it, was, it was, for me, I would characterize it as maximum freedom with minimum responsibility. I wasn't one of those kids who had a bad relationship with my parents that, can't wait to go to college, and it wasn't like that. It was we had a great relationship. My wife and I are dating, so I'm hanging out with my former wife, you know, to be. Played sports. It was it was great. All you had to do was obey your parents and make your grades. I mean, if you can't do that, you have problems. And all you got to do in high school is show up. I mean, it's easy. So life is it was fun. You know, as much as I would love to go back there, sometimes I can't. I cannot. I could go back and put on football pads, but it would be a very painful experience. It's not going to be the same way it was 12 years ago. Um, and even if they would let me in, there's no way I could talk all my friends into going back. That part of my life, as grand as it was in my eyes, is gone forever. I can't. We were listening the other day to the radio out by the pool, and Brian Adams' Summer of '69 came on. Those days are gone forever. High school, love it or hate it for you, is gone. And guys, this is what Paul is saying about the unregenerate man. It's high school. He's dead.
dead. He's buried. You can't go back. But you have a new life to walk and live in presently. Not one day, someday in heaven, even though that's true. The beauty of what Paul is saying is this newness of resurrection life is for today. It's to be experienced by believers today. You know, some of us need to answer that question tonight. Did we know that? And if we did, I think we need to answer the question, what are we doing? You can't go back to unregenerate life. It's buried. And guys, if you're fully back, I mean fully back. I mean participating in sin like you used to, and there's no conviction. Let me tell you on the authority of God's Word, if you're fully back into unregenerate life, then you're not a Christian. That's what it says. Because if you're back, then it never died. And you misunderstood, you thought you were something that you never really were. We have new lives as regenerate men and women after we meet Christ by faith. And thus, that is what we live in from now until the day when we behold Him face to face. That's glorious news. The next question for us ought to be, well, how is that possible? That sounds great. The old man's dead. i got a whole new thing. How is that possible? The second thing that Paul would want you to know this evening, and more briefly, is that that newness of life is made possible by the resurrection. And look, he starts that in verse 5. If we've been united to him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Makes sense, right? If we're united to his death and burial, we have to be united to his resurrection and life. You get the benefits of the whole thing. Now, I know somebody talked about union with Christ. I don't... That, that topic is so glorious, you'll never fathom it this side of heaven. Union with Christ means every righteous thing that Jesus did, you can lay hold of and say, that's mine. Jesus is casting out of demons and, 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 and preaching the Sermon on the Mount and hearing, healing paralytics. You could lay hold of that and say, those things belong to me because I'm united to his life. We're united to his life and his death. We're also united to his resurrection. Look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That old man, the old life, the unregenerate life is killed in order that we would no longer be enslaved to it. And it has to die in order for resurrection to take place, right? Because you can't resurrect if you're not dead. So it's death is necessary for newness of life. Now, verse 7, is, it's, glory, it's worth crocheting and hanging in your kitchen. <clears throat> Almost as glorious as verse 14. For one who has died has been set free from sin. You could spend a month on that. Because it's now dead, guys, it can no longer be our master. You're free to live freely from its tyrannical reign. That's, that's the clearest I can put it. Before, you were not free to live freely, but now you are. You are free to live as free men and women. You are free from the tyrannical reign of slavery to sin. And I hate we have to move on, but we do. <clears throat> Verse 8. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. If we've died with Him, then we'll live with Him, right? And again... For the believer, this newness of life, this resurrection, 
spiritually, what I really want you to grasp is to be lived now. It starts the second after regeneration. This isn't a one day, someday thing. It's, it's now for the believer. You're called to live in newness of resurrection life now. <clears throat> Verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Because in his resurrection he overcame death, it no longer has dominion over him. Did it ever? Well, for three days it kind of did, didn't it? But it won't anymore. Verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Because the death he died, he died to sin and sin's reign and dominion. The life he presently lives, he lives not in his humiliated state under sin's dominion, but he lives to God. And understanding that, we get to verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you understand everything I've said, Paul would say, then you have to understand that right now you are dead to sin and alive to Christ. And it's enabled by the resurrection. It was the same thing for Christ as it is for us. It was the event that severs his humiliation and begins his exaltation forever. The resurrection. It grants Jesus newness of life and it grants you, believer, newness of life. In our home, um, holidays are a big deal. I can't overemphasize. Um, if you ask my kids what their favorite time of year is, they will tell you Halloween. We carve pumpkins. We buy costumes. I sit them down and retell the story of Martin Luther and the 95 Theses, and we go out and celebrate Reformation Day and knock on everybody's door and get candy. It's great. They love it. Love it. Um, they love Christmas. I love Christmas. Every day I walk home from work and the lights are plugged in and the yard's lit up and my wife's baking something and everything smells good and uh, it's fun. But the one thing that I really want my kids to grasp is the significance of Easter. And we do eggs and baskets and whatever. Sorry to disappoint. But we're trying to tell them, look, guys, seven-year-old and four-year-old, look at me. Everything in life points to this. Everything. You take this away and you have nothing. Nothing else, Matt. It's an oversimplification, but it's true. You take the resurrection away and there's no reason for any of us to be here tonight. You take the resurrection away and you have taken away our hope. Because if there's no bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, then the old man that Paul's talking about isn't dead. And if there's no resurrection and he's not dead, then you don't have any hope. You are stuck living under the tyrannical reign of sin and its slavery, and you will never get out if there is no resurrection. You're hopeless. But the glorious thing that we celebrate in the gospel is that there is a resurrection. Because Jesus rose from the grave and gives new life after death. Physically, one day, yes. But our hope tonight, spiritually, is that we have new life to God now. 
But you take away the bodily resurrection, you have no hope of new life in this life. And what you look forward to is continued bondage to sin and consummate dominion and death. Consummate penalty of death because you have no hope. Guys, tell me that. I don't know your hearts, but tell me you can rejoice with me alongside the fact of the resurrection tonight. It's really worth getting excited about. It's the hallmark of our faith. It's our hope. one day because of the resurrection I will live again with this body on the other side of the grave and it's going to be in a lot better shape and we can all celebrate that that's going to be great news I can't wait but for today I spiritually live as a new man or woman because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that enables and empowers me to do so and that's what sanctification is I have hope for this day because the life imparted to me in the resurrection that without it, I'm hopeless. Now, there's one thing that Paul wants you to understand, and this is, if you've gone away, come back. You have to understand the effect of what those two things produce. And that is that we're free to live by grace. There's nothing more sweeter than I could tell you tonight. If you thought the first two things were good, they are. The old man's dead and you got new life and it's made possible by the resurrection. That's great news. This, if you get this by the Holy Spirit, this will set you free, literally. If you get, this changes things. Look briefly with me at uh, verses 12 and 14. There's not a therefore here, but that's kind of what Paul is doing. He's giving you the application of everything he said. Therefore, we could say, the application of everything he said in chapter 6 is, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make, oh, that's so well-worded, to make you obey their passions. You've understood everything I've said at this point. The old man's dead. You no longer live life under his domain and slavery. If you got that, then don't let sin even attempt to reign in your mortal bodies and make you obey its passions. Now, guys... Did Paul say anywhere that we would no longer have sinful natures? Did he ever say that? No. Did he say that that way of life, though, in which we used to have to submit to those natures is dead? Yes. Things are different post-resurrection life for the believer because I no longer have to obey sin as I once did. Therefore, verse 13, don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That makes sense, right? We now have a choice. So therefore, don't use your body as an instrument to sin because that's what you used to do with the old life. That's dead. If you understand the new life of the gospel, why would you go back and live like that? Rather more present your life to God and use your life for righteousness. Now, verse 14 is one of the sweetest things in the whole Bible. 
For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. You have to get this. Because of your new life, sin no longer has dominion over you as it formerly did. Can it entice you? Can it tempt you? Yes. But that old self, that old way of life in which you had to give in to its desires and demands is dead. So for God's sakes, if you understand the gospel, don't live like that anymore. Because you're not under law, but under grace. Do you even, do you know what that means? I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. Does that mean that we no longer have to obey the law? Is that even remotely what Paul said, first of all? No. If that's your interpretation, then you don't understand the Bible. That's not what Paul said. What did he say? You are not under law. What does that mean? Let me tell you. Can the law in and of itself save you or anyone else for that matter? Does the law have the power to save? No way. Never did. Does not. Can't now. Can it guide? Can it convict? And a whole lot of other things? Yes. But can it and does it have the power to save you? No. It doesn't. Does grace? Yeah. Listen, I can't remember which commentator said this, but it's go get it tattooed on you somewhere. Grace dethrones sin and its lordship over us and enables us to offer ourselves in loving service to God. That's really the point of our existence, isn't it? Listen, listen to this. Grace dethrones sin and its lordship over us, which it used to have. Only grace can dethrone it. And enables us to offer ourselves in loving service to God. Isn't that what you want to do with your life? Don't you? I do. I don't want a bunch of rules and codes and do this and do... That's... No. I want to get the gospel and be overwhelmed by the beauty of having all my sin forgiven and then as an offering... Get to serve this God that saved me. That's what I want to do. I think that's what you want to do. You ain't doing it under law. You're no longer under the hopelessness of the law and its powerlessness, but you live new life, and that's by grace. Now tell me this. Do you think that getting that, do you think that understanding that just might affect the way that we live out our Christian lives? Just maybe. It's a little even. If we get the fact that we're not under law and we're under grace that set us free and we now have the opportunity and privilege to serve God with our lives, do you think that might change things? That we serve a different master and everything is different? Before I came to work here almost 10 years ago, uh, I worked in human resources for FedEx. Had a great job, had a great relationship with my boss. It was a fun year. And he loved me for a bunch of reasons. A, I figured out how to play him. It was easy. I knew exactly what he wanted. Um, it, was, it was fun. Um, but there's one reason why he really, really, really loved me. And it was back in the, in the mid-90s when 
business casual was kind of becoming the thing, but not fully. So somebody would show up in corporate America, what I have on, with slacks and a polo, and it'd be like, I'd love to be wearing that right now. It's 105, but uh, is he going to get in trouble? Kind of, you remember that? There's a weird period for a couple of years. Like, can we really do this? Well, because he wore a suit and tie every day, and I knew that he loved that, and everybody else in my department tried to skate by with business casual, I wore a suit and tie every single day. And he loved it. Loved it. Never had to say anything to me about it. Every day I've got on a suit and tie and I walk into the office with with my briefcase and my paper and my coffee and every day he would scan me from head to toe and he had to make sure, even though I was his favorite, that I still knew that he was the boss every day. And so every day I'd walk in and be like, hey, Mr. Bishop, how's your morning going? And he'd give me a quick scan head to toe, and he'd say something like, Ray, get some polish on those shoes by tomorrow. And I'd come in the next day, and my shoes are shining, and he'd be like, straighten the knot on that tie, it's sloppy. Every day, even on the days where I outdressed him, and there was no question about it, there was some little nitpicky thing. Well, I resigned there and um, started working here, and I didn't see him for like a year and a half. And um, one, and, we, and again, we still we had a great. I loved him. We had a great relationship. I saw him at a Redbirds game. I get, we got the youth group at a Redbirds game. It's hot. Half the kids are running out in the street downtown or somewhere, and I'm hungry and I want a hot dog. And so I get up and I, and I get one. And as I'm walking back to my seat, I see him approaching me, and it was glorious because everything was different. I got on flip-flops, and I got on a T-shirt, and I could give a rip about shoe polish. I don't care what he thinks. I hope he loves that I look like a slob. Guys, here is my question for us tonight. Why would you want to continue to live under the dominion of the old boss when you've been set free by the new one? Why do you want to go back to shoe polish when somebody told you you can wear flip-flops when it's 105? Why? Grace cut the leash and told you to go and live righteously, pursuing like mad after the Savior, Jesus Christ. Why would you want to go and put it back on and live in sin and hopelessness? Why? That's insane. Does it make any sense? Unless you like shoe polish and suits. Sanctification is the process between regeneration, the time you become a Christian, and glorification, the time you reach heaven. It's the now. Why would we want to live the now under bondage to sin when grace has set us free? Why would we obey the enticements of sin when we have the ability, the ability, not only the duty, the ability to pursue righteousness? Who wants to waste that? I don't know either. All I know is that it would be because we failed to understand the beauty of the gospel message, especially as it pertains to our present lives of sanctification. I'll close with this. Though it would be impossible, I just showed you from Romans it's impossible. I ain't going back to that life, and I ain't going back to that boss. There's no way. You and all your friends could not drag me back to the life of slavery under the cruel bondage of sin and law. You can't. I'm not going back. I will fight, die fighting you not to go back to that. 
And guys, for me now not to chase after the Lord Jesus Christ with total abandonment, and you too, would suggest that we don't really understand His liberating grace, would it not? That's all I can come up with. If we're not willing to risk and to sacrifice everything to follow Him with total abandonment, it's because we don't understand still that it's a privilege to get to do that for righteousness' sake. And just like the misunderstanding that leads to marital relational strain, misunderstanding your relationship to the Savior will do the same. And what you forfeit is not your salvation. Don't I, didn't, I never said that. You want to become a believer and live under law and keep codes, you'll, you're gonna, you'll probably end up in heaven. If that's what you want to do, that's fine. What you're going to forfeit is not your sanctification. I mean, your, well, you kind of will. What you forfeit is the wild, reckless, fierce invitation to pursue Jesus and to know Him personally and intimately and to live daily by His grace. That's what you forfeit. The wild fierceness of, what's He going to do today? He's calling me to chase Him. Is he, Am I going to get the, Am I going to enjoy communion? And is it is it going to be glorious? Is fellowship going to be great today? Guys, by your union with the Lord Jesus Christ, and by your now having new life by His grace, and by your understanding the importance of the resurrection and your relation to it, go in the power of the Spirit and chase after the Lord Jesus Christ who set you free, like men and women who understand the liberating beauties of the gospel. That's the greatest admonition I can give you. Cast off all restraint and chase Jesus Christ like madmen and women if you get it. Why would you not? Because, guys, to do anything else, anything other than that, would be to live life in a grand declaration that you still don't rightly understand His goodness and His grace. And far be it from us to waste our new lives doing such. I'll close with this. This will feed you, next to Scripture, nothing will feed your soul like this. Valley of the Vision, it's a book of Puritan prayers. Um, I read it twice a day, following my legalism. I just love it. It's not legalistic. I read this on Tuesday. I want to share you. It's so pertinent to what we've been talking about tonight. The Puritans got it. And be careful, I mean, because on the third prayer, you're going to think you're not a Christian. That's, was, that's how the Puritans walked with the Lord. Listen to this. In light of everything I've said to you tonight, if you didn't get anything I said, get this. This is all you got to get. Let me reckon my old life dead because of crucifixion and never feed it as a living thing again. Get that. Let me reckon my old life dead because of crucifixion and never feed it as a living thing again. Grant me more and more of the resurrection life. May it rule me, may I walk in its power, and be strengthened through its influence. Amen to that. Heavenly Father, we are your people. Um, We're Christ's inheritance. And I beg, I beg you, that you would not let your people waste their spiritual lives in bondage. By the Holy Spirit, would you take the doctrine of grace that saved and liberated them and unites them to Christ 
And will you set them free to chase you wildly? May they look at their sanctifications not as a duty, but as an exhilarating adventure of chasing the Savior. And we can't manufacture that. Only you can produce it. I beg that you would. In Jesus' name.